The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. to take the reading this morning from Jeremiah chapter 7, a reading from the English Standard Version. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of of old to your fathers forever. Behold, You trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh where I made my name dwell at first and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord. And when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did in Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. Open with a short word of prayer. Oh Lord God, truly you are a great and a vast God. You are the one who measures out the universe. And you're also the one who calls his people by name. We praise you, Lord, for though we have sinned so often and so repeatedly and so stubbornly, yet you're a gracious God. And your hand of favor is still extended towards us. And we praise you, Lord. We praise you not for the merit we have in ourselves, but for the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you sent as your own son, the son whom you loved, to die for an unlovely and an unworthy people. And we pray, Lord, this morning uh, that you would teach us something more of his grace and mercy from your word. We pray these things in the name of our precious Savior, the Lord Jesus himself, through the power of of the Holy Spirit, to you, God our Father. Amen. I'm not neither a theologian nor a biblical exegete, so when I speak in chapel, I tend to try to avoid uh, theology and biblical exegesis as much as I can. I wanted to speak very briefly this morning, uh, not so much on that passage, but a theme that I think underlies some 
uh, parts of that passage in Scripture. And something which I think is perennially relevant to uh, a seminary community. As a historian, there are a number of ideas that I've sort of grasped hold of over the years in an attempt to make sense of the past. Uh, You need to have keys, interpretative keys, if you like, to go back to the past and make sense of what is, on the whole, a relatively chaotic mass. And one of the things that I came across a few years ago was something, and I'm sorry to introduce a, a slightly pompous technical term at this point, but I'll try to explain it. came across something called commodity fetishism as a way of explaining how things happen in society. It's a pompous term, but what it means is that there is a tendency in human society to ascribe agency or power to things that in themselves possess no agency or power. You see it very, in very trivial examples in, uh, well, if you were to drive out of the seminary now, uh, those of you who've been into my classes will know that I have a particular hatred of SUVs and the people who drive them. We live in a society where a certain power is ascribed to SUVs. They possess a certain status. When you drive your SUV on the road, you think you are saying to other people that you are influential and powerful. You're saying to somebody like me that you don't care about the environment. But of course, that's uh, because I belong perhaps uh, philosophically to a system that is not particularly uh, welcomed uh, in certain areas of middle America, I guess. But there is power and agency ascribed to these things. They have a location within a broader system that gives them power. And of course, the ultimate fetish, if you like, in modern society is money. We tend to assume that money itself possesses a certain power. If you have money, you are able to do things that you cannot do if you do not possess it. And ultimately, of course, social scientists argue that it's all a con trick. It's a trick that money in itself does not possess power in and of itself. It is relatively worthless bits of paper and metal printed and stamped in certain ways. It is the system, the system to which the money belongs, that gives it its veneer of power. And of course, I think as a Christian, one would want to uh, up the ante some more and say the contract isn't just there in the origins of this power, it is there in the results of the power as well. Uh, If I can quote the great, I think he's a poet. You might laugh at this, but I think Bruce Springsteen is a poet. All men want to be rich and rich men want to be kings and kings ain't satisfied unless they rule everything. Money, of course, cannot give what it promises. It has no power to deliver the kind of satisfaction which those who spend their lives chasing it desire. And that is all background to what I want to say briefly about, I suppose, seminary life and seminary education today. I think there is a great danger in the way we approach seminary education that we can turn it, if you like, into a fetish. We can invest it with a power that in 
and of itself. It does not possess. And I think we can see this in the way that education is frequently used in our churches and in our Christian communities. I just give uh, three very brief uh, types of what I would consider to be abuse or fetishization of uh, seminary education. There is the neo-Gnostic use, where the fact that you have a particular kind of knowledge places you beyond the criticism of those who do not possess that knowledge. That is a very dangerous, I think that is particularly dangerous in the more academic realms of the church these days, where there is always a temptation, I think, among scholars in particular, that we set ourselves up as beyond criticism because we are able basically to outgun and outflank our opposition simply on the basis of the number of books we've read or the knowledge we have. Secondly, education can be used simply as a blunt instrument. The very fact that you have those magic initials, MDIV or PhD after your name, can be used as a way of blunting criticism, blunting opposition, of beating your opponents uh, into a cocked hat. And thirdly, and this I think is perhaps the most insidious danger and the one we're least aware of as it's happening, and that is we can divorce our theology from the one who ultimately speaks that theology. Our theology and our doctrine can become an end in itself and not something we connect with the living God who speaks that theology. We can invest the words of scripture, if you like. We can invest the words of our systematic theologies, or to be fair, our biblical theologies, with a power in and of themselves which they do not possess. It is only a systematic theology. It is only as biblical theology speaks God's words after him that it possesses any power. And that, I think, lies behind. Why did I choose Jeremiah 7? The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. What have the Israelites done at this point in time? They had divorced the temple, the building, the geographical location from the one who dwelt in the temple. And that, I think, is an ever-present danger for us as seminary professors and students at seminary. What can we do then in answer to this, to remedy this? First of all, remind ourselves again and again, day by day, in prayer and through reading of the scriptures, that the action of God is the source of all power. And the action of God is also that which defines power. For the Christian, notions of power are to be shaped by the cross and what goes on there. We are to understand power and influence in the sense of the first few chapters of Corinthians. Our notions are to be shaped by Christ. Secondly, we are to model our lives upon that. 
What does Jeremiah say in verse 5? If you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. The character of the person described there is the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ is to be our model. He is to be the one upon whom we base our lives. And how do we get this power? Well, let me close what I have to say today by quoting from Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and following. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. That, I would suggest, is a manifesto for your time at seminary. What should you be doing at seminary? You should be studying hard, not as an alternative to developing a Christian character, or not as a separate track from developing a Christian character. You should be using your studies as a time to come to know the Lord precisely in order to shape your Christian character. If I can quote Bruce Springsteen again, there's that wonderful line, you spend your lives waiting for a moment that just don't come. You should not spend your time at seminary thinking, well, I can do my studies now and I can get on with cultivating true Christian character three or four years down the line. That moment never comes. Life is always too busy to set, side a, a set time aside for developing Christian character. The time to develop Christian character is now. If you spend your life waiting, the moment just won't come. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we do praise you for your word. We marvel again at your description of yourself. Oh Lord, what a wonderful God you are, one who does not oppress the fatherless or the widow, one who is truly righteous, one who cares for the orphans. And Lord, we pray that every book we read, every lecture we hear, every sermon we take notes on, that these things, Lord, would help to shape our Christian characters, that we might see in our lives now an anticipation of the great glorious eternity that is to come. We pray these things knowing, Lord, that we are sinful, knowing there is nothing good in us, knowing that we depend upon you totally for all things, but confident that you are the God that you describe yourself to be in your scriptures. Amen.